Growing up, most of my friends couldn't understand why anyone would choose to spend their free time reading. I once told my mom that there was no better feeling than leaving the library with a stack of books. I was a bit of an old soul, and I probably could have gotten out more, but the sentiment has stayed with me in the decade that followed. My primary source of reading motivation is the likelihood of finding myself within the pages of a novel. This happens in the best works I've read, regardless of events far-fetched, settings out of reach, or characters greater than I, which is a lot of them. James Joyce's Ulysses is celebrated and also shied away from, known for the rich mystery within. When I set out to read this book, I armed myself with the 20th edition of Don Gifford and Robert J. Seidman's Ulysses Annotated, a used copy of the novel from Amazon, and the conviction that there had to be some pieces of me waiting inside. I'm Lauren, and this is When and Why Ulysses is Hashtag Relatable. Sorry for speaking the hashtag. It had to be done. Telemachus is the first chapter of the novel. In the course of 17 pages, we watch one of our protagonists, Stephen Dedalus, come face to face with death, guilt, and religion. He also eats breakfast. Aside from the fact that the first meal of the day is my favorite, and his choice, bread with honey, would have probably been mine too, there were additional, undeniably relatable moments in this first section. The most noteworthy occurs for me when Stephen is asked whether he believes in a personal god, and his response is... You behold in me, a horrible example of free thought. Instantly, I feel close to Stephen. A bit confused, maybe, but I do not feel isolated in the least. In high school, I learned that people are often jokingly instructed to dodge three main topics of conflict and conversation, money, politics, and religion. After Stephen's comrade dives into one of these, Stephen turns the moment not into one of controversy, but instead self-deprecation. He appears to not have made his mind up surrounding a personal god, or if he has, he doesn't feel confident enough to share. Stephen's uncertainty is easy to identify with, not least because the subject is already a testy one. He labels himself as the antithesis of a free thinker. He does not see himself as worthy of an answer. Although much of Stephen's narration is actually conducted through interior monologue, this instance captures a moment of public rawness. Although he is speaking to someone outside of himself, Stephen is unfiltered. Joyce notes his demeanor as a sort of grim displeasure. Stephen is disappointed by the question and makes no effort to disguise this response. From the get-go, Joyce removes the need for a designated warm-up period in which the reader adjusts to the shoes which they will walk in for several hundred pages. We are, instead, plopped into Stephen's head. The candid thoughts we are privy to serve as strong hands helping us to climb aboard with Mr. Daedalus. The second chapter, Nestor, finds Stephen in his place of work, a school. His colleagues, then, are children. Predictably, this stirs up reflections of age. Stephen compares his own status in life to that of the young men sitting in front of him, particularly one boy named Sargent, who asks him for help after class. Stephen's musings carve more deeply into his heart than a more high-level narration might. He thinks to himself, with Sargent at his side, Secrets, silent, stony, sit in the dark palaces of both of our hearts. Secrets weary of their tyranny, tyrants, willing to be dethroned. 
This was when I began to see myself in the text. I wrote this exact phrase in my journal just last week. Stephen doesn't just observe the small stature of Sargent compared to his own manly features, nor does he pine for his youth. At least, he doesn't stop there. The notion of secrets lying within both himself and the young men he teaches adds an element of universality to this moment. Both in adult and child states, we all harbor personal desires, knowledge of things we wouldn't dare to speak. And yet, they weigh us down with their power, like tyrants, eager to unleash their power. To see myself in this line took a rereading and also forced me to take a deeper look at what secrets sit in the dark palace that is my heart. A more overtly relatable moment is when Stephen devises a plan to charm his friends with a line he says in the absence of their company. I store up little quips and jokes and stories every day, all for the sole purpose of enchanting my friends in such a way that it appears I only just dreamed up such lovely discussion points on a whim. Less analysis was needed to feel close to Stephen in this moment. When to unleash it? Tonight deftly amidst drink and talk. Deftness is defined by the Collins English Dictionary, perhaps better known as dictionary.com, as dexterous, nimble, skillful, clever. All of these are highly desirable. I wouldn't mind if everyone I knew, from my landlord super to my barista at the local Starbucks, found me to be nimble and clever. It wouldn't be necessary, but it would improve life, if only incrementally. A moment like this one aligns the reader even further with Mr. Daedalus. He, too, is wary of the gaze of others and seeks to please whenever possible. Planning a humorous remark is not ideal, but it could definitely be described as clever. Chapter 3 brings us to Proteus. Stephen Daedalus is walking the beach while his mind wanders a maze of immense complexity. He does not abandon us, though. We have already been welcomed into the incredibly complex human psyche that Stephen possesses. We are officially along for the ride. A stronger light is shed here on Stephen's insecurities as we gauge a stronger sense of the critical and fearful voice inside his head. In two daydreams that bleed into each other, Stephen imagines his father and then his sister discussing him. Then he pictures his uncle lecturing him. Both of these scenarios lend themselves to weary self-consciousness, but neither are as powerful as his flashbacks to Paris. Stephen conjures an image of himself as a tourist in the City of Lights, but rather than romanticizing his time there, he recalls the surroundings with rosy shades and then turns a critical eye to himself. Riley, he says, God, we simply must dress the character. Millennials and Gen Z have been to referring to themselves as the main characters, the heroes of their own stories, the leading roles in the movies of their lives. Stephen's approach is less favorable than this. We can practically feel him cringing at his try-hard clothing, puce gloves, Latin quarter hat, and the way he lopes down the street. Whom were you trying to walk like? He asks himself. This interior monologue is not at all distant from the running monologue that courses through my brain as I cross campus. If I feel good in my outfit, the satisfaction is fleeting and weak. It's simpler to look at ourselves with suspicion rather than praise. Stephen doesn't evoke pity in this way. The primary result of this conditional self-regard is to draw a parallel between him and us as the readers. Unfortunately, a strong sense of self-confidence is rare to find in most humans, and it generally requires careful and consistent nurturing. Stephen, like so many of us, isn't quite there. Another instant when Stephen is framed as a person not unlike you or me is when he thinks to himself, You find my words dark. 
darkness is in our souls, do you not think? The use of the word our suggests a sense of community between him and us. The framing of his question, ending as it does with, do you not think, lends itself to be believed. He is, in my eyes, correct. Every human being I know has pieces of darkness within them. Pain, terror, anxiety. It might come in the form of the aforementioned secrets or concerns over what clothing we chose to wear on a particular evening. This line nearly breaks the fourth wall of the novel's page, as for a second, it is easy to believe that Stephen might actually be addressing his readers. Thus, the relatability of Ulysses. It's enforced in the first 41 pages of the novel, and I expect it will continue to ring true. Regardless of sometimes convoluted phrasing, the unpredictable detours and tangents that Stephen wanders into, we are reminded multiple times in each chapter that he is, in fact, very similar to us. My brain has its own side streets and wild goose chases, as does yours. The first three chapters of Stephen's story makes us more willing to explore those. Thank you.